Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Innovations in Education, eSchool News' podcast on the latest and greatest happenings in EdTech. I'm Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. In this episode, we go big picture and analyze some of the new realizations that we've discovered about teaching and learning during the COVID catastrophe. And while tech tools are an important part of the equation, it's really more about how they are used with an emphasis on empathy and with attitudes that focus on mental and social emotional health. These are the things that need to be in place before any of this stuff is really gonna work going forward. First, Jana Hunziker. She's at the College of Education and Health Sciences at Bradley University. Uh, She details some prescriptive advice for teachers in the classroom. It's on the homepage of eschoolnews.com under the headline, Seven Tips for Teacher Mental Health. You can read all of them there, but here are a few. First, develop new skills. She writes, COVID brought us into the hybrid world of teaching, but the truth is this new world is both a curse and a blessing. Developing proficiency in new technology ultimately will make your job easier rather than harder, but we all know that learning to use new tech can produce a lot of anxiety. Here's my advice. If you don't have a lot of experience with a new learning technology, start small. Create a syllabus, set up a practice quiz, record a short video. As you become confident using each tool, she writes, you can begin experimenting with different ways to engage students. Remember, Rome wasn't built in a day and your tech skills won't be either. Be patient with yourself. Next, use automatic grading. Learning management systems like Blackboard and Canvas can feel impersonal, but taking advantage of learning technologies can give you time back and reduce workload. For instance, if you administer an online quiz that's automatically graded, you can still analyze the results and design future instruction based on students' responses. In this way, you can assess students' understanding of a concept without having to hand grade everything. Here's one more, prepare for change. She writes, this means mental preparation such as following current events and keeping up with trends and issues in education. It means willing to try new things, not just new technology, but also new ideas for the classroom. Maybe it means going back to school for a certificate or an advanced degree, so you aren't left behind when it's time for your career to move forward. Once again, some other great tips and tricks in there for, you know what, not only for faculty, but for administrators and for, I'll speak for myself as a parent. Next. Student mental safety has always been a top concern, but the traumas of recent years have made a tough situation even tougher. Dave Rogers, CMO at Raptor Technologies, and Craig Miller, he's a retired chief of police and emergency management for the Dallas ISD Police Department. They put down some very insightful and important considerations as we return to in-person learning experiences. The piece is called Four Major Components of School Violence Prevention. Again, it's up on eschoolnews.com. Here are a few excerpts. They write, first off, schools should monitor social media posts to understand and anticipate which ones may be relevant to them. Additionally, parents should monitor their students' social media activity on a regular basis too. Not only parents generally unaware of social media trends in a broader sense, but they are also unaware of what their child is participating in. They go on. Next, teachers and school personnel need to be hypervigilant and observing student behavior. They need to take note of students who are quicker to get angry, 
and need to understand what those triggers are in order to avoid pushing them past their breaking point. Another important part of prevention is cultivating relationships between the school and the broader community. This is a case where schools can use social media to their advantage. If the community is involved in the school and aware of positive news, they'll be less apt to believe unverified rumors or be overly critical of school policy. Once again, unpleasant stuff, but it really is essential advice in this new reality that we're living in. And finally, I was able to have a chat with Dr. Quinton Shepard. He's the superintendent at Victoria Independent School Districts in Victoria, Texas. He's also the co-author of a new book entitled The Secret to Transformational Leadership. The book was written with PR veteran Sarah Williamson and it released this week. Together, they use their combined decades of experience in the education and corporate spheres to create a unique model for leadership that is anchored by compassion, and a powerful new language. Now, the essence of it seems to come down to the difference between the ideas of complications versus complexities. And okay, maybe this sounds like a matter of semantics, but I'll let Dr. Shepard explain here. Okay, well, Dr. Shepard, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The news obviously is a new book out, The Secret to Transformational Leadership. I admit I haven't been able to read it yet, but I certainly have saw the previews and it seems like it's pretty intriguing. I guess my first question is what it's like to write a book and manage a district during a pandemic. Now they say Mary Shelley was able to write Frankenstein during a a pandemic. And I think a lot of writers took this opportunity, but you you had a few things on your mind, right? While putting this together, talk a little bit about your experiences the past years. I did. I did. The pandemic was its own. It was its own challenge. I've been a superintendent for 18 years now. So I had some some experience going into the pandemic and had a sense of how that job is done, but certainly not during a pandemic. Um, But as the pandemic was really coming at us at the beginning, you know, fast and furious, I've been having this evolution in thinking about leadership and how we should be doing leadership in the public sphere for well over a decade, probably closer to 15 years. And I've been sort of codifying these thoughts in my mind about gosh, there, there are certain instances where we're just plain doing it wrong. I mean, we're using the wrong word, we're using the wrong style, we're taking the wrong approach, and it's just not making any sense. And I've sort of internalized these lessons that I've, that I've taught myself about the difference between complicated leadership versus complex leadership. And there's, there's a very big difference between complicated and complex. And for me, um, recognizing at the onset of the pandemic that we were facing a number of complex issues, and that had certain meanings for, for my leadership, but then I was watching other leaders in the public sphere treat the pandemic as though it was just complicated, as if there's one right way to handle this thing. And I'm like, no, this is ridiculous, Q. Like, it's time you officially put these thoughts down on paper, write a book about what it is that you believe to be true and what you believe to be happening in the public, in the public sphere when it comes to leadership and, and put these ideas out here so that hopefully we can advance the conversation just one step and then, you know, maybe, maybe build on it from there. Well, talk about a few of those things. As you said, I mean, you you were talking about these things before the pandemic. I'll assume that during this crisis, you discovered some new ideas and innovations in terms of leadership as well. Can, you know, and I'll just step in here. One, from my conversation, the idea from the instructional side of social emotional learning or empathy, certainly that was something on the side that kind of came front and center. In reading some of the previews, it seems like that was some of the ideas that you present as well. Maybe we could start with those. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the nice part about this particular framework is it's applicable to almost any conversation that's happening in education right now. And, and maybe I should take a half step back and explain that when, when a decision comes to our desk that's complicated, there's one right answer. There's one right way to do it. And typically it requires expertise to do it, right? So uh, deploying a bond schedule, for instance, you, you hire people to do that who have a tremendous amount of expertise, purchasing and lots of stuff that happens within HR. Those are all complicated tasks. And I have a staff for that. I have a leadership language for that. We have a way of doing things like that. But complex, a complex thing is inherently unknowable. So an example from the pandemic, what's the best way to educate kids during a pandemic? I don't know, Kevin, you don't know either, but you and I both have an opinion on the matter. And so does every other American. And see, the problem is when a, a public leader said, oh, this is complicated. I'm gonna get my senior staff together, really smart people. We're gonna come up with a pandemic response plan and then we're gonna trot it out to our community and show them our work. The community is ready to judge that work because we've treated it as a complicated issue. We said, look, there's one right answer, and here's the answer. And the public was like, wrong, you missed right. it. Right. See, so facing it as a complex issue means that it's inherently unknowable. And so you start with vulnerability. You talk about empathy, and you start with vulnerability. And what it requires is going to the community and saying, here's this really complex issue, and we actually don't know what to do. We, we have a couple of really good ideas, but we want to hear your ideas as well. And that way, everybody gets to come to the table in a very important way, closed and knowing. They're closed-minded and they know the answer. And we're actually saying, yes, please come, please come closed and knowing. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear what you think we should do. We want to hear how you think we should approach this. But then we transition into open and learning together. When everybody shares their thoughts, see complex leadership is not about hierarchies. It's not about power structures. And think of all the language we use around hierarchies, power structures, policies, regulations. But complex is all about networks which basically dismantles this notion of hierarchy. It dismantles our notions of power. So we have, to, we have to talk differently. We have to use different, we literally have to use a different language as if I asked you to learn Swahili. Like we have to learn the language of complex so that we can, we can honestly um, have our communities be a part of finding solutions. So we, we could talk about uh, social emotional learning. We could talk about uh, equity. We could talk about just about any topic that, that folks want to talk about. It's not off the table. And, and like I said, I've been doing this for you know well over a decade. Oftentimes, here's a couple of examples where superintendents treat problems as complicated when they're not. Whether or not we should go out for a bond. How much should we go out for a bond for? Should we build new schools? Should we close schools? Should we rezone our district? None of those are complicated because there is not one right answer. But if you, if you start with complex, then that means you go deeply embedded into your community first. And the trick to making it work, it sounds simple, right? Like, oh, this is easy. Anybody could do this. But it doesn't, it, it's not as easy as you might seem because the first step is having empathy, right? So empathy is feeling the, you know, feeling the suffering of others or, or what have you, or connecting with others. But see, empathy by itself doesn't get it done. You also have to have empathy with a, a drive towards action. And empathy plus action is at the heart of compassionate leadership. And that's what this is all about, really, is compassionate leadership. Um, passion means to suffer. Compassion means to suffer with. So it finds me, the leader, going to our community and saying, I'm suffering with this problem, and I really don't know what to do. And then I ask the community, how, how are you suffering with this problem? Because I want to help you solve that. And then through that compassion, through that connection, we're able to do some of this transformative work, hence the secret, the transformation, transformational leadership. Well, it seems that these ideas and insights are, are more than 
important than ever when you look at some of the uh, school district board meetings over the past several months when it comes to masks and a variety of other things. So what, what you're saying is uh, so that's a responsibility of the leader, in your case, a superintendent or the leadership team of the school to manage the community or create that culture? To create the conditions of, to, to have that culture and to have that community conversation. The way that we've chosen to do it in, in my district is ab about as clean as it could possibly be. We actually put it in policy. We, I, I think we're the only school district in the country that has a policy that talks about complicated versus complex problems. And in our policy, the board and superintendent are held to the standard that if it's a complex issue, we start with the community. We don't hold ourselves in a room in some private secret enclave and come up with solutions to problems. We just go straight to the community first and, and let's have this conversation in a, in a real and meaningful way. And that, that just, it's just easy. It's like the ultimate in transparency is put it on the table and recognize right. that, you know, you're going to be vulnerable anytime you face something complex. And a lot of what we face in education is complex. Does this apply when you scale it? I'm not sure the, the exact size of your particular district, but, you know, one of the things about the U.S., 15,000 different school districts of sizes, you know, when you get to the top 50 are probably larger than most countries' education yeah. departments. But do you feel like this is something that can scale? hundred percent. We use a lot of digital tools to help do this. We you use a, a number of crowdsourcing tools actually um, that, that help us uh, tackle this. So for instance, when we were writing our pandemic response plan, the first place we went was to the teachers because we felt like they were the, the most boots on the ground uh, who had knowledge and we wanted to extract that knowledge from them. So I think we had a total of, I, I, there were over 700. There's somewhere between seven or 800 teachers that came in, like I imagine this beehive, like we all landed in this hive mind and we harvested ideas from all 700 teachers and literally took their language. We crowdsourced it. So the stuff that was most prescient on people's minds, we crowdsourced that to the top. And then we took that language and used that language to build the rudiments of our um, pandemic response plan. Then the next step, was to go to the students. And so we brought a bunch of middle school and high school students had, I don't know, 600 kids and did the exact same thing. And then we merged all that language and then we went out to our community. Well, at this point we've had, you know, well over a thousand voices, almost 2000 voices who've helped write this plan. So the question of scalability, you, you could do this at any level. You could do this from a uh, hundred people in your school district, all the way up to 100,000. There's, there's no question. When we wrote our strategic plan four years ago, before the pandemic even came about, uh, we had tens of thousands of people who actually contributed to the strategic plan from all around the community. And then what we did is we just crowdsourced the ideas, took some of the top ones. So there's some community member somewhere who is like, I wrote that. Like, I actually wrote what's in their strategic plan. Look, cool. Like, we don't care who gets the credit. We just want the best thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in some ways, so you were doing this over the past couple of years. So you were doing it remotely and using a technology platform. Yeah. And in some weird ways, maybe doing it remotely was more efficient than getting everybody into the, the cafeteria. Oh, <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, we, we, what we were doing prior is we were doing it somewhat remotely digitally on your tools so that you could do the crowdsourcing thing. But then we were also doing task force meetings in person. Then when we were pushed into Zoom, it actually made it easier in some ways, it made it harder. You had to learn some new technical skills, but that's, you know, that's just the technical skills. Once you figure that out, in some ways, it made it easier. And now we're back to like a combination of both. We do some Zoom, we do some face-to-face -face stuff. It's just whatever, what we, want to, what we want to do as leaders is we want to meet people where they are. So if you want to sit at home and you, you know what, you, you worked a long, hard day and it's nine o'clock at night and you want to 
contribute a little bit to the strategic plan, great, hop on your phone and, and get it done. If you want to show up for a task force meeting, we'd be we'd be happy to have you there too. I think the point is you just you make yourself available however people want to talk to you. And do you see this platform and this dynamic now being entrenched going forward? I mean, is this something that is the dynamic? You know, that's, you know? that's the that's the hard part for me is because you know, truth be told, Kevin. Uh, there are leaders who are trying to do their work this way, the way that I'm describing, but there's some other leaders in the public sphere who still think of this antiquated paradigm where the leader is supposed to collect all this information and somehow store it in their head and have the right answer and then distribute that information to the appropriate groups at the appropriate time. There's this sort of privileged view of reality, to put it very bluntly, and, and, and I think the, that most folks are like, wait a minute, you're asking me to support my will to your privileged view of reality as if as if I don't have access to Google, frankly, because this is a complex issue and I can do some research and I can get pretty smart about this too. And, and so I think that more and more people are starting to use these tools, more and more people are starting to use this type of language. What's not really happened is somebody who's tried to kind of bring all of this together. We've got these awesome crowdsourcing tools. We've got this way of doing work with communities and we want to do this transformational work. But yet again, back to the premise, we don't have the language to advance it. Like we have to use a completely different language in, in place of hierarchies, we talk about networks, right? In place of complicated, we talk about complex. I think that's the, that's the really important part for me is let's master this new language so that we can actually have the conversations we're, we're trying to have. Finishing up here, what would be the one thing that you hope a reader uh, who is a, a leader in a district, a colleague of yours somewhere else here in the States would, would take away from reading The Secrets of Transformational Leadership? Is there a single thing? or There is. There is. I think if there's, there's a single thing I, it, for different audiences, for someone who's already in a leadership position and has been in a leadership position for, for some time, I think it's just the recognition that when you start out, out in leadership, you play, you play by the rules as they were handed down to you, right? And then after a few years, you realize I could be doing it differently and I should be doing it the way I want to be doing it. So for those leaders who read this book, I hope that you take away this notion of complicated versus complex and the application of new language in that space. And then, and then practice it, start to learn this new language. For folks who are aspiring into leadership positions or just getting started in leadership positions, I hope that they read this and have that light bulb moment of, oh, I get all the leadership language I've been reading in my university coursework and how to do leadership and leadership versus management, so on and so forth. And here's this way to contextualize all of that information in a way that might be applicable for me when I start off as a leader. That's great. Well, doctor, thank you so much for your time and your insights. I look forward to, to reading it and getting more in depth and hopefully we'll be able to uh, meet in person as uh, these events start to go back in person and uh, talk some more. So thanks again. I like that very much. Thank you, Kevin. More details on the book can be found up on the Newsline section of eSchool News. And I found it popping up on my Amazon Prime account as soon as I Googled it. So uh, it's a good way to find the book as well. I'm sure he, would, he and Sarah would appreciate you giving it a look and giving it a download. So that about wraps it up for this episode. Be sure to check back on eSchool News for all the latest and greatest news and analysis for what's happening in the ed tech space. Remember, eSchool is always free and always helping innovative educators just like you. Until next time, I'm Kevin Hogan.